0: Hey everyone, welcome to Poetry Says. My name is Alice. Thanks so much for listening in today. I'm very excited today because I get to talk to you about a long-time favourite of mine, the poet David Brooks. I'm going to talk about two of his poems, one of which is a very, very short one from his 2008 book, The Balcony, and a very recent one which just came out in Mianjin a couple of months ago. So I very clearly remember buying The Balcony, I guess it must have been around the time that it came out in 2008. I remember going into a bookshop in Canberra and picking up this book just because it was so beautifully made. Um, University of Queensland Press does such a beautiful job with their books. So that would have been the the reason that I bought it. I didn't know anything about David Brooks, the poet at the time, but... As soon as I started reading it, I felt this really deep sense of relief because this was the first poetry book that I had read so far that I felt entirely welcomed into, which is interesting because it's dedicated, it has a dedication here uh, for Teja, 77 love poems and then some. So this is a really personal book that David wrote it's um, it's for a specific person. And so I guess by that logic, there, there could be a kind of insularity about this book, a feeling that if it's all written for a single person, it's not going to include the reader as much as some other books might do. But I didn't feel that way at all. I felt like I was part of a very intimate conversation, yes, but I felt like it was a conversation that was happening in... Language that I could access, which was really important to me at the time. I'd just started writing poetry the year before, and I think I was still very much laboring under the delusion that I had to use a very specific kind of vocabulary and references, and I had to write a specific type of thing to be a poet. And this book is just so lucid, it's so beautifully wrought. Every single poem in it is just so. It's just shining with the effort that's gone into it, but they're very simple. They're very simple poems a lot of the time. They're very clear. And this first one that I want to read you is a perfect example of that, I think. It's, as I said, incredibly short. It's a haiku in English, which I know can be controversial, but I think you'll agree this one is particularly well done. It's called The Way Back. You're sleeping, my bridge, over the abyss of night, each outbreath, a plank. I just think that poem is so perfect as an example of how a haiku can work in English. The first line says so much with just four words, you're sleeping, my bridge. David's taken out any extraneous words here. I suppose you could have said, your sleeping is my bridge, your sleeping becomes my bridge. Uh, of course, that doesn't work with the syllabic scheme of the haiku at all, but yeah, it's, it's extremely condensed, that first line. Um, and the second line, over the abyss of night. I don't know how many people listening are fellow insomniacs, but I'm sure all of us have had one of those nights, that just feels like it stretches on forever, and the word abyss there is so perfect to me. It's um, yeah, I can't I can't think of a better way to describe it. And then the last line is just so gorgeous. Each out breath a plank. So again, fellow insomniacs, you'll know if uh, if you have someone in your house who's also sleeping, you're awake to hear their breath, right? And there's this deep feeling of loneliness, being an insomniac. You feel like you're the only person awake, even though there are probably hundreds of people around you in houses everywhere who are also lying there awake, but you feel like you're the only one. And so this sound of this person next to you breathing, each time they take a breath, there's a sense of you're not alone and time is passing and eventually dawn is going to come and this fact of you not being able to sleep isn't going to matter anymore because everyone else is going to wake up and you're going to be part of the human family again. So there's so much in that tiny, tiny little poem. Because it's so short, it it might have gone past really quickly, so I will just read it one more time before I move on. The Way Back you're sleeping, my bridge over the abyss of night, each outbreath a plank. That poem actually reminds me of a wonderful poem by Jane Kenyon. She has quite a few poems about insomnia, being, it sounds like, a pretty chronic insomniac herself, and she's written one that's just called Insomnia at the Solstice. It's Yeah, just a fantastic document of the whole night. It's um, it's seven stanzas long, goes over a couple of pages. But so she just documents the whole process of going to bed, trying to go to sleep, realizing that she's not going to sleep this night and getting towards the dawn. And then she gets up again and the last stanza is just so great. She says, "'Washing up, I say to the face in the mirror, "'You're still here. "'How you bored me all night.' And now I'll have to entertain you all day. So yeah, just so perfectly encapsulating that feeling of, I've been with my own brain all night and I didn't have any chance to get away from it and now uh, I have to deal with it all day as well. Just, yeah, really, really perfect, really clear. um, Yeah, really honestly documenting how frustrating it can be not to be able to sleep. The next poem I wanted to share with you of David's, which he kindly gave me permission to read in full here, is called Wild Duck Sutra, and it came out in the spring issue of Mianjin this year. I feel that this poem as well shares something with Kenyon. I have no idea whether David Brooks reads Jane Kenyon or has any affinity with her work at all, but I feel that there's some kind of thread here between what Jane Kenyon does in her work when she looks at something that's happening around her property. She lived um, with Donald Hall on a a big property that they inherited out in New Hampshire and so many of her poems are just looking at something relatively mundane, maybe a flower, maybe um, the change in weather, something that has to be done around the farm and then drawing a line between that and some larger truth And sometimes with Kenyon, that's a truth about God. Um, But my contention with Kenyon is that it's always a God that, it's a complicated God. It's not the God of Mary Oliver who's going to come and fix everything. I think in David Brooks, it's probably a different story. Um, Again, I don't, don't know what David's relationship to the divine is at all. But um, I think it's interesting. So this poem is called Wild Duck Sutra. So calling a poem a sutra, I had to look up what that word actually refers to. And apparently it's, it's something like an aphorism that is part of scripture or teachings in um, a whole bunch of religions, including uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. It's meant to be sort of a short, pithy statement that teaches you something. This poem is actually quite long. It's, it's four stanzas long, um, which is long in my book. It's not actually that long at all. And uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that it's called a sutra because there is a bit of a, a religious connotation there. But I think as you hear it, we can make up your own mind, but I don't know that there's much of the divine in it. I think it's very much in the tangible world. So I'll read it in full now and then I'm going to go back and try and do a bit of a close reading on some of the stanzas and lines here. So Wild Duck Sutra. Eight wild wood ducks greet me at the gate. Follow me down to the feed room. Wait while I get them a handful of seed before taking hay to the sheep who descend upon it as if it were the last lucent in the country. I stand and watch, then leave them to it, walk off to fill the water trough, the sky clearing in more ways than meet the eye, the world outside these fences so precariously at bay. It hardly bears thinking, all things are full of meaning, so they say, you just have to wait for it. What they don't say, is how much you have to clear away before the simplest things become evident. As this, for example, dripping from the lip of the tank, creeping like the sunlight over the grass, slipping from the beaks of wood ducks, how we might share refuge, rescue each other. So I'm hoping that in my reading there, you can hear a little bit of the rhyme that David is using and um, also, there's, there's so much assonance in this poem. There are so many repeated uh, sounds that just come back. The rhyme scheme, I guess, I don't, I don't know that there is a scheme actually, but there, there is a lot of, there's just a lot of crossover. There's a lot of referencing different sounds between the lines of the poem, but it's definitely not following any strict meter here. But again, just like with the poems in the balcony, I feel like this poem is just vibrating with the amount of effort that's gone into every single line. I looked up what a wild duck would look like in uh, David's part of Australia, in New South Wales. They're those really super cute ducks with brown heads and their dark brown eyes, really sweet little things. Yeah, and it, it, it sounds it sounds to me like this is a record of a real experience that's taken place on David's property. So simply put, he goes to feed the sheep, he fills the water trough, the ducks follow him around, they drink a bit of the water. That's that's really all that takes place. But of course there are these these huge themes coming out of that. The recognition of the world outside this small experience that he's having, and the precariousness of that separation. I guess you could say it's an eco-poem, but uh, yeah, I'm using that word really hesitantly because I'm not sure how much that has to do with, yeah, the place of the the speaker in the poem. I guess the difficulty with calling this an eco-poem is, I think at first glance, it seems as if the non-human world doesn't have as much agency perhaps as as what the human speaker in the poem is doing so they're taking the seed they're feeding the sheep they're filling the water trough it's just the sheep get fed the ducks get some water but then in those last two lines i think there's a recognition of the fact that it's not just the human that is important to the animal but it's an animal that's important to the human as well. So he says, we might share refuge, rescue each other. So maybe then it fits the category of an eco poem. But again, I'm, I'm pretty shaky on that. I'm kind of unsure as to whether I want to use that term here. Again, I think this poem follows a sort of Kenyan-esque pattern. The first two stanzas are basically setting up a routine process that's happening on the property the going down to the feed room, getting the handful of the seed. But at the end of the second stanza, there's this turn where he says, the world outside these fences so precariously at bay. And then in the last half of that poem, that world actually starts to come rushing in as he starts to talk about these themes of all things are full of meaning. So they say, you just have to wait for it. What they don't say is how much you have to clear away before the simplest things become evident. I think that line, how much you have to clear away, is is so key here as well. I think there's a recognition of the fact that you have to get away from that world that's being held precariously at bay to see it clearly. And again, to see those to see those really simple but huge truths. And that's what's dealt with in the last stanza of the poem, which has this fantastic has a fantastic repetition of the words dripping, creeping, slipping. So I'll read that one again. As this, for example, dripping from the lip of the tank, creeping like the sunlight over the grass, slipping from the beaks of wood ducks, how we might share refuge, rescue each other. So I feel that the word this at the start of that stanza is referring to the water, yes, but The close reader in me wants this to expand out beyond that. I want it to refer to the poem and to this whole process that the speaker is going through of realizing the simplest things becoming evident. Um, I feel like that word is doing so much heavy lifting in this poem. Again, I have no idea whether David Brooks reads Jane Kenyon. Maybe he hates Jane Kenyon. I don't know. Maybe he would really hate this this, uh, parallel that I'm drawing here. But I feel as if Wild Duck Sutra has this similar sort of structure. Um, It's doing a similar kind of work as as Kenyon does in so many of her poems. And I thought I'd read you another little example that I feel like has some resonance. So this is a Kenyon poem called Depression in Winter. There comes a little space between the south side of a boulder and the snow that fills the woods around it. Sun heats the stone, reveals a crescent of bare ground, brown ferns and tufts of needles like red hair, acorns, a patch of moss, bright green. I sank with every step up to my knees, throwing myself forward with a violence of effort, greedy for unhappiness, until by accident I found the stone with its secret porch of heat and light, where something small could luxuriate, then turned back down my path, chastened and calm. Thanks for listening in everybody to another episode of Poetry Says. If you enjoyed this episode and you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you told some people about it. In fact, if you wanted to jump on iTunes and leave me a review, that would be amazing. And thanks as well to David Brooks for getting in touch with me and generously allowing me to share these two beautiful poems on here.